Good to see you this morning. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here. This morning, I thought since it's Easter, maybe we'd have some fun. Yep, for some fun? All right, so uh, my son is really into bouncy balls and things that bounce. And I've always kind of liked this room, just how, how high the ceiling is. And uh, I thought this morning, well, I'm gonna see how high I can get and see how high some of his balls bounce. You good with that? All right, let's try it here. Try not to be afraid. If I go down, uh, Dave, you're up. (laughs) So (laughs) we'll see how this goes. This is really high. You guys look small down there. (laughs) So I've got a a handful of balls here. I've got a a tennis ball. And uh, we can just see Brady, you're right down front. So you can let us know which one, in your opinion, bounces the highest. Sound good? So we got a tennis ball. Let's, let's try it out. We'll see. That's eh, an old tennis ball. Didn't really do that great. Uh, I got a baseball, which reminds me, baseball started. Uh, the Cubs are playing. Yeah, they've won three in a row. And so maybe uh, we'll see how high this bounces. Maybe it'll be reflective of their bounce back year. Yeah, they're not going to do that great. I've got uh, the, big, the big sky ball. Let's see this one. Hey, that's a little better. Uh, I've got a basketball. Try that. Ooh. I've got a bouncy ball. By the way, in our house, uh, uh, my son, like I said, he's really into bouncy balls right now. So if you come into our house, keep your head on a swivel because you don't know when a ball might come (laughs) flying past your head. Uh, Ooh, there we go. And then last but not least, I've got a golf ball. You know, the carpet's probably not helping. If there was no carpet there, I should have peeled a little bit up for this experiment. Oh, bad aim. I think that would have bounced maybe the highest. But you know, uh, the little boy in me would really hope that however high that ball bounced, it would bounce back up at least as high as from where I dropped it from. But it never does. Have you noticed that? It never bounces back fully from where it fell. Uh, You know, uh, physicists uh, describe uh, the bounciness of a ball in terms of its coefficient of restitution. And uh, give a hand to those guys who grabbed the ladder. I think they're gonna come put it away again now. My, My roadies. Thanks, guys. But they describe it as the coefficient of restitution. That's how, uh, how physicists would describe how bouncy a ball is. For the nerds out there, uh, coefficient of restitution just accounts for the resultant velocity after two objects collide. That's what you were hoping for, wasn't it? Good work, guys. Thank you. Um, but one of the things, again, they note is that the ball will never bounce back fully to where it began, to where it started. But the higher its coefficient of restitution, the higher the ball will bounce. Now, it'd be really cool if you had a ball that would bounce back as high or even higher than you dropped it from. And there is a little trick. If you want to try this at home later, you can do this. If you grab a racquetball and uh, cut it just a little bit more than in half, and so you have a little less than half, you can kind of flip it inside out. You can shove it inside a balloon, make a balloon about that big, blow it up, tie it, and you can drop it with this kind of inverted in there. And when you drop it, 
it bounces back higher than the place from which you dropped it from. Isn't that kind of cool? And I couldn't get it to work with a balloon, so I thought I'd just tell you that you can do it on your own. <laughs> Pretty amazing, you can do that all day. And the, it, it bounces back higher than it's ever been. Well, on Good Friday, there had been a fall from a great height in which Jesus died, he was buried, he was put in the tomb, and it seemed like there was no coming back from it. His disciples had, had followed him for three, four years of their life, and now their time was up. It, it was done. It was over. They had fallen lower than they had ever been before. This was especially true for a guy named Peter. We've been looking at his life over the last few weeks. And uh, in fact, as a church, we've seen a lot of Peter this year as we've been studying the New Testament book of Acts. And in Acts, uh, we see Peter just do some incredible things. He preaches the gospel with boldness. God uses him to heal people. He leads with incredible courage. But do you know, Peter wasn't always like that. He wasn't. And so we, we've taken a little break the last just couple weeks and we've, we've looked at Peter, at his character and the man Peter, who he was, and how did he become so courageous is kind of the question we've been asking ourselves. Well, last Sunday, we saw him at his lowest. He had fallen from a great height where he denied even ever knowing who Jesus was, let alone being his friend or his follower. It was a big fall. However, three days later, the bounce back of all bounce backs took place when Jesus rose from the grave. And what we're gonna look at this morning is that truth and then how that too even affected Peter. Um, you should know the resurrection is critical to Christianity. The resurrection is central to everything we believe. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is, let me just say it, it's the stupidest, vilest, biggest waste of time ever. And all of us, especially me, are fools. If it didn't really happen. So it begs the question, if Jesus did really rise from the grave, who witnessed it? Who saw him? How do we know? You know, I mean, and, and the people who saw him, can we really trust their accounts of everything that happened? Uh, we should note that those who claimed to see the risen Jesus became passionate about the truth of the resurrection, of this bounce back. They went on to upend the world and most of them ended up dying for their faith. Now, how many people would die for something they made up? Only crazy people. But, but almost all of the disciples die because of their faith in the fact that they wouldn't quit talking about Jesus' resurrection. And the gospels give various descriptions of his resurrection. And this morning, we're gonna look at John's account of it and uh, his appearance to his followers and even John's own discovery of the empty tomb and, and Peter's role in that. Well, after Jesus' death, we're told that uh, Jesus was buried by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and another guy by the name of Nicodemus. Uh, Joe and Nick were members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. 
In other words, they were, they were those who, who sat through Jesus' trial. But Joe and Nick uh, evidently carried with them uh, kind of a closet affinity for Jesus. Because after he died on the cross, Joseph goes to Pilate and he says, hey, can I have his body to give him a proper burial? And he and Nicodemus take Jesus, wrap him and put him in an empty tomb, in, actually in Joseph's tomb. And it, a tomb that looked probably something like this. It would have been hewn into rock and there's a ton of rock in Israel. So to hewn into it, kind of down low, and you'd go in, you'd have to stoop down to get through the door and there'd be uh, kind of a bench in there where bodies would be laid. And some of the more elaborate ones would, would go three, four levels deep. And then in this case, Joseph evidently was a wealthy man because the wealthiest of tombs would have a stone that got rolled in front of the tomb, in front of the, the entrance. Common tombs were cut more like a, a wedge and then the stone that was cut out was kind of pushed back in like a cork in a bottle. But we know here that evidently Joseph was a wealthy man simply because he had a stone that was rolled in front of the door. Uh, by the way, that just fulfills even more prophecy, even in Jesus' death. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine, written 700 plus years prior to this, says that Jesus would be, uh, he, he would die among the wicked, he was crucified among those who are wicked, and that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Joseph gave up his newly hewn tomb that he had maybe been planning for his family after his retirement so they didn't have to worry about his funeral and he gives it to Jesus. Well, uh, after he was buried then, the chief priests also come back to Pilate and they're like, uh, uh, hey, Pilate, we, need, we want this tomb to be sealed up. In fact, here's what they say. Uh, they went to him and they, they wanted it to be sealed and placed under guard uh, to make the tomb secure until the third day because they remembered that Jesus said he was gonna rise from death on the third day. He said, if you don't do this, they said, the disciples might come and steal his body. And then they'll just tell people that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And, and this last lie will be worse than the first one. It'll be the worst one yet. Well, Pilate gave them their wish and he said, take some guards with you. Go make the tomb as secure as you can. And so uh, the stone was rolled in front of the tomb. There would have, would have likely been a cord put across it with clay seals stamping it into the rock to make sure no one messed with it. And it was under guard for at least three days. Well, this morning we're gonna pick it up three days after all of this in John chapter 20. And uh, before we get there though quickly, let's, let me just pray and ask God for his help in understanding his word. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection, for the hope we have in that. And, and Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it, for uh, not leaving us on our own, but speaking to us through it. And Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would help me as I teach your word and uh, help all of us as we, as we study it and look at it together this morning, that you'd help us understand the things you've written, that you'd help us understand the truth of what Jesus did for us and his resurrection. And Lord, uh, that we might leave changed. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, if you got your Bible, turn with me to, uh, to John chapter 20. And we're gonna start reading in John chapter 20, just right there in verse one this morning. 
John chapter 20, starting in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. In fact, there was more than just Mary. Uh, The other gospel writers tell us there was a group of women that came. And it was while it was still dark. They were coming to anoint Jesus' body, to anoint his body for burial, which would have, they couldn't do prior because of the Sabbath. And so they waited and they were coming uh, early Sunday morning and they saw when they got there that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mark tells us that as they're walking there, they're asking each other, I don't know how we're gonna do this because I don't know who in the world's gonna roll the stone out of the way for us. I think it's so heavy. Well, of course, when they got there, they saw it was already rolled away and, and they were relieved. Well, uh, when Mary sees it, Uh, The others evidently uh, maybe stayed there for a bit, but Mary takes off and she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple here, by the way, were in John's gospel. John never refers to himself by name. He always calls himself the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. So she went to Peter and to John, the one whom Jesus loved, there it is, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. It's curious that even at the moment they get to the tomb, they're still not quite sure what's happening. It takes a little bit. And we're gonna see the same thing here in a moment with some of the apostles. So Peter went out with the other disciple. He went out with John and they were going towards the tomb. Now I should tell you, Peter and John were lifelong friends. They grew up in the same small town, this little fishing village on the north side of the Lake of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is just a big lake, in case you wondered. And they grew up there and uh, they probably lived down the street from one another. And they were good friends along with their brothers their entire lives. I mean, they grew up in this same village. They both became fishermen themselves. They both end up following Jesus. They both end up uh, even in Jesus' inner circle as some of his closest friends. And they see things and hear things that many of the other disciples never heard and never saw. And many scholars point out that between Peter and John, there's a bit of a rivalry. There seems to be a bit of a rivalry between the two of them, which totally makes sense if they're good friends. I mean, think maybe, uh, especially guys, some of your good friends growing up or even maybe a brother. And there's a little rivalry there, isn't there? You wanna see who can do this better, who can run faster, who can fill in the blank. Well, all through the scriptures, we see Peter and John, a little bit of rivalry between them. I mean, for example, I'll give you a few. Um, John's embarrassing moment, Mark in his gospel, and by the way, Mark's gospel is likely Peter's account. Mark would have served alongside Peter and there's the debate of how well Peter could actually write. And so maybe Mark penned uh, Peter's gospel, basically. Either case, Mark's account, it's widely believed that that's Peter's account being told to Mark to write it down. And when Mark talks, Mark mentions a considerably embarrassing moment for John where John and his brother James ask Jesus who gets to sit at their right hand. And then Jesus rebukes them. Well, guess who doesn't record that? John. (laughs) And then uh, Peter's embarrassing moment in the garden when Jesus is arrested, Uh, Peter's embarrassing swordsmanship. Peter takes out the sword and and trying to cut off the guy's head, he only gets his ear and he's going to fight everybody. Well, guess who doesn't record whose name that was? 
Mark doesn't say who did it. Guess who does? John tells us it was Peter. Kind of like two brothers. Even in Peter's denial that we saw last Sunday, Mark and the others mentioned that Peter wept bitterly. John never mentions him weeping bitterly, just that he denied Jesus. Well, let me show you one other one, I think, that demonstrates a little bit of their rivalry this morning. They take off running for the tomb and notice what John writes. Uh, He says, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Take that, Peter. You know, I don't have any way to prove this, but I even kind of wonder a little bit if the fact that John, always uh, referring to himself as the one Jesus loved, if even that wasn't a little bit of an inside thing between the two of them. And, you know, kind of like with your siblings, you might say, oh, mom loves me more than you. Yeah, she does. She told me. If, if John kind of, if that was the joke, that John was the one Jesus loved, I have no way to prove that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I'm kind of curious to ask those guys that when we see them in heaven one day. But they're running together and either uh, Peter's just older and fatter or whatever the case, John's quicker. And when they get there, stooping in to look, John beat him and John saw the linen cloths there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and Peter in true Peter form. It's like, what are you waiting for? He goes right in. He just goes right in to check it out. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. You know, it's curious, if someone had stolen Jesus' body, like maybe Mary initially thought, they took his body and we don't know where they took him. They probably wouldn't have unwrapped his body there first. They probably would have just taken the whole thing. So I think there's even more evidence here that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And notice what he writes. And then he saw and believed. Up until this point, Peter and John and the others, even though they had been told by Jesus that he would rise again three days later, they still didn't believe And now after seeing the empty tomb, John believes. And friends, the empty tomb moves us to believe. It moved John to believe. It it does the same with us, for all of us. And that's because Jesus' resurrection, I, I said it already, but it's central to, and it's critical to Christianity. Without the resurrection, It's such a waste of time. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, uh, if you've been joining us or if you choose to join us in the future, uh, you'll see over and over how many times the resurrection is referenced. So much so to the point that, uh, and even throughout the rest of the New Testament, all the letters reference the resurrection often. I've started marking it in my Bible in a different color. I've got a green pen where every time the resurrection shows up, I mark it in green just to stand out to me. And maybe maybe you'd want to do that too. Uh, It's central to Christianity and central to the gospel. In fact, uh, let me show you one example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
uh, where the Apostle Paul writes, he goes, uh, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's central to the truth of the gospel. Jesus uh, died for our sins, was buried, and he rose again to new life. And later he says this in that same chapter, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still stuck in your sin. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have, have perished. They'll never rise again either. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if this is all there is, and we're saying he rose from the grave and we're putting all our hope in that, but it never happened, then of all people alive, we're to be the most pitied. Friends, if the resurrection didn't happen, I am an absolute fool. But I think there's all kinds of evidence that in fact, it did happen that it did. Overwhelming evidence. One example being that women discover the empty tomb. In this day and age, uh, when this was written, women didn't have a standing in a court of law. They couldn't be a witness. And, and if you're gonna make something up then, 2,000 years ago when you're writing this, why in the world, in every account, would you write that women discover the empty tomb? It wouldn't make any sense unless in fact it's true. <clears throat> now, John, he sees the empty tomb and he believes, but what's curious is he's still in process. He still hasn't figured it all out yet. He's still learning. And friends, the truth is that faith, true faith and belief often precedes full understanding. You might even be able to make the case that it always precedes full understanding. Because look at verse nine. Uh, well, first in verse eight, uh, John, he looked in, he saw, and then he believed. For as yet, they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Faith and belief often precedes full understanding. I mean, it wasn't until they were confronted with certain facts, uh, they weren't really even able to understand what the scripture had said. I, I wonder, some of you maybe, you might be reticent to believe. To believe this is really true. Somebody drug you along today, you're watching online because you happen to find it. But is it really true? You kind of think so, but you can't understand all of it yet, so you're, you're, just, you're not willing to step out in faith. Well, let me just tell you, that's exactly what faith is. It's believing God's word, and acting on it, stepping out in faith, trusting then that he will prove himself to be true, even if you don't understand every little detail yet. Can I tell you something? As a pastor, somebody who's been following Jesus for decades now, th there's much I don't understand yet. But uh, continually, God shows himself to be true. In, in fact, uh, Proverbs 30 it tells us in verse five, every word of God proves true. And I can tell you that's been true in my life. So if you're waiting to figure it all out, let me just encourage you, no, instead step out in faith. Step out in faith. 
Look at the empty tomb and believe. See, at first, this all didn't make sense to John or Peter, even after they believed. And they had just witnessed a huge fall. It didn't make sense. It didn't make any sense. But suddenly they see the empty tomb. They believe. And the bounce back's coming. They're about to be restored. Uh, in fact, not only with Jesus' life, but Peter's own restoration is going to happen. Because the empty tomb moves us to believe and to be restored. Peter was at his lowest after denying Christ. In his greatest time of suffering, and now there's hope again. Let's just pick up the story in the next chapter, in chapter 21, and, and read a bit here of some of the things that happen. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, a lot of different names for it. He revealed himself in this way, John says. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, and two others of his disciples were all together. And Simon Peter said to them, forget this, I'm going fishing. He just needed to give back to regular life for a little bit. It had been an eventful few days and a couple weeks for him. And he just needed a break. He needed to kind of get his wits about him. And then they're like, all right, we'll go with you. And they all went out into the boat and they set out into the sea, but they caught nothing. And then just as day was breaking, so evidently they went out overnight fishing, uh, Jesus stood on the shore. This is after his resurrection. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? No, <laughs> they yelled back. And then he yelled to them, he said, hey, cast the net on the other side of the boat. I think you'll find some. Jesus had told Peter to do this previously, by the way. So they cast it. And now, after all night catching nothing, they weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, he goes, I just wonder if he doesn't just smack him. It's the Lord. <laughs> just hit him really hard, you know? And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Again, typical Peter. The other disciples came in the boat, <laughs> dragging the net full of fish. Thanks for your help, Pete. <laughs> for they weren't far off from the land. It was only a couple hundred yards out. But when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, along with bread. That's kind of curious. John tells us it's a charcoal fire. Do you know there's no other place in the New Testament where it's mentioned that uh, the type of fire is a charcoal fire, except for one spot? Earlier in John chapter 18, verse 18, we read on the night, uh, right before Peter betrays Jesus and as he betrays him, uh, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them standing and warming himself around a charcoal fire. And now we read, here's Jesus on the shore with a charcoal fire. 
He's setting something up here, isn't he? Jesus said to them, he said, hey, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore uh, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you, Lord? Because they knew who he was. They knew it was the Lord. Well, Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus had revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then we get to verse 15. I wanna draw our attention here for just a bit. And back to Peter. When they'd finished breakfast around this charcoal fire, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these guys? And uh, Peter goes, yeah, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. And then a second time, he says, Simon, son of John, uh, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's like, did you forget? You just asked me this. He says, well, tend my sheep. But he wasn't done. He goes back a third time and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, at this time, Peter's grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And, and he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. Do you see what's happening here? If you know uh, Peter's story, and if you don't, let me fill you in briefly. He was warming himself around that charcoal fire uh, a few days uh, before Jesus' resurrection, the night before he was crucified. And in that moment, he was asked some questions very similar to these by a young servant girl, teenage girl, who said, aren't you one of those who follow Jesus? And Peter said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. A second time, surely you're one of them. Your accent betrays you. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And a third time somebody asks him while he's warming himself around that charcoal fire, you're one of them, I recognize you, you're him. And he says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I swear, I don't know the man. And now Jesus around a charcoal fire asks him, hey, Peter, do you love me? And this time Peter answers the questions right. And three times he does it very much restoring Peter. And from this moment on, then Jesus gives him hope and he gives him purpose and uh, Peter's life will bounce back to heights it had never been before because of Jesus. He, he goes on, he says, uh, truly I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. That's kind of a common proverb in that day. You know, when you're little, you get up, you dress yourself, go where you want, run around. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. 
uh, stretching out his hands, this was to show what kind of death Peter would die to glorify God. And then after saying this, he said, follow me. Peter, by the way, would end up being crucified. Only he would, it was around the year 66 under Emperor Nero for his faith. Only Peter would be crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified and then die in the same way as my Lord. What's amazing here, friends, is that uh, the empty tomb caused Peter, caused John to believe and everything was restored. They, they were restored because of it. Everything was covered. I mean, Peter had dropped from such a high height. Could he ever get back to where he was? All of those dreams dashed, not only for Jesus, but even for himself. But the truth is in the gospel, everything is covered. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. Uh, Isaiah says, uh, writing uh, the Lord's word, God says, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be washed and made white like wool. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Do you see when you trust Christ and when Peter trusts him and, and repents and turns back to him, all of his sin is covered. All of your sin is covered. Past, present, future. You're like, oh, what do you mean future? Well, think about it. When Jesus died for you, all of your sins were future. They're all covered. And everything is covered over. And not only is everything covered, but then it's, it's not just uh, covered, but it's forgiven. Everything is forgiven. Uh, everything with Jesus He's the propitiation for our sins. This is a big word. You really only see it in the Bible. It means uh, propitiation, that Jesus took the punch of God's wrath for us on the cross. He suffered in my place and in your place, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, for anyone who would believe. And when Jesus on the night, when he was, on the day he was crucified, when it was finished, he said, it is finished, it's done. There's nothing else to do. Paul tells us there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all forgiven, all of it. And you can't outrun his love. Paul goes on then to say, I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now Peter has been restored by Jesus and he has new life and new purpose. And if, if you would trust Christ, you too, could have new life and new purpose, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. See, religion says this, if you do enough good things and you follow all the rules and get it all right, then maybe, maybe Jesus will forgive you and love you. If you don't mess it up, The gospel says, no, uh, Titus chapter three, uh, we're forgiven because of works done by him in righteousness, not our own righteousness. That Jesus did it all, he paid it all. He said, it is finished, nothing else to add. And so when I put my faith in him, now instead of trying to live up to that standard, 
I live from the new life that he's given me. See, he gives you new life. He gives Peter new life. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus describes it to a guy named Nicodemus, that guy who helped, ended up burying him as being born again. He said, truly, I, I tell you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. It's a simple act of faith. God so loved the world, Jesus tells him, that he gave his only son that whoever simply believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't say whoever does it all right and gets it all in the right order, then he'll be saved. No, he says whoever just believes. And then that belief changes you and gives you new life and now you can start to live it out. No matter what you've done, what's been done to you, where you're from, the color of your skin, Jesus died for you. And being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Christ died for us and made us alive. And not only this, but he gives us true purpose. He gave Peter true and new purpose. He told him, feed my sheep then, if you love me. Feed my lambs. He gave him purpose in leading and caring for the church. And you know, he does that for you and I too. If you trust Christ, now suddenly you're restored and you, you, you get a renewed purpose in your life. If you feel like you have no purpose, then let, let me commend to you Jesus Christ. If you turn to him, he gives you purpose. In fact, he said to uh, Jeremiah, and he would say this to you as well, before I formed you, I knew you, God says. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have plans for you. I love you. I have purpose for you. And he goes on later, he says to his people and he says to us, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you future and a hope. And this was at their lowest moment, he said this to them. And he says it to us at our lowest moment so that as we trust Christ, there'd be a bounce back of new life at a higher height than you ever started. And not because of you, but because of the work of Christ. Friends, uh, the empty tomb moves us to believe. Even if you don't fully understand it all yet, believe, God will prove himself to be true. And, and not only to believe, but be restored. You need to know that you, yes, you, can be restored. To bounce back higher than you were. Everything covered, everything forgiven and given new life and new and true purpose of life. All you need to do is believe. I'm gonna pray and then in a moment we're gonna have a handful of people come up and uh, declare their faith in Christ publicly uh, through the waters of baptism, just symbolizing their death, burial, and Jesus' resurrection and their future resurrection and walking a new life with him. Let me pray. And then uh, we're gonna celebrate uh, their testimony together.